There's grave imbalance um, in the unequal distribution of authorship and inclusion of authors from the Global South, um, but then also marginalized uh, communities across the world. I think that decolonization efforts would not be as meaningful if, you know, a really few scholars from former colonies are engaged in this kind of publishing and writing. This is a form, um, you know, that derives from the legacies of imperialism, uh, colonialism, Eurocentrism, and Orientalism, uh, and the framing of the other in terms of whose knowledge gets to count and, and who has voice. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for tuning in this morning. I'm David Schlossberg. I'm the director of the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. I want to start, as we always do, by acknowledging that I and SEI and the University of Sydney are on the unceded, stolen, uh, and colonized land of the Gadigal people of the Ora Nation. This place was a meeting place, a hunting ground, a place of learning, and a burial ground before colonization. The SAI is located in the original building of the university in the famous sandstone quadrangle, uh, sandstone that's literally held together by mortar made from Gadigal shell middens from around the harbor, the remnants of Gadigal relations with this local environment. So I want to acknowledge the crucial knowledge of this place that's held by elders past and present. So welcome everyone to our very first SEI grounded conversation. I want to introduce the series first briefly before introducing our first featured guest. The grounded conversations are meant to serve a couple of different purposes. First, uh, keeping grounded, of course, is how we avoid carbon emissions. SEI has long brought uh, visiting fellows to Sydney, had them fly in from far away uh, to share wisdom, collaborate with us uh, on our events and projects, spend time here meeting uh, our members. We've always been mindful of our carbon emissions, but lessons from the pandemic and Australia's complete lockdown, um, mixed with the technological opportunities of Zoom and Teams, means that we can sort of extend our engagement with colleagues from a distance. So to both keep the emissions down and our collaborations up, we're sort of formalizing what we've been doing and in introducing this Grounded Conversation series. But grounded also means that we want to hear from people not only about their academic work and not in a formal presentation, um, but um, about their approach to that work, about their ties to their various communities, academic and otherwise, about their lives beyond the latest publication, and importantly, their advice to emerging scholars. So these events won't be formal presentations of research, um, but really, hopefully, conversations. Now, um, I am nearly beyond words to um, be able to introduce our absolutely incomparable first guest, Professor Farhana Sultana. Professor Sultana is a professor in the Department of Geography and the Environment at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. She's also the research director for environmental collaboration and conflicts in the program for the advancement of research on Conflict and Collaboration at the Maxwell School. He's a visiting fellow at the International Center for Climate Change and Development of the Independent University in Bangladesh. Before Syracuse, Professor Sultana was at King's College London and the University of Manchester. Prior to entering the academy, she worked in the UN Development Program in Bangladesh. And while her PhD and subsequent work has been in geography, her first degree from Princeton was in geosciences and environmental studies. Professor Sultana is a multidisciplinary and collaborative scholar. At Syracuse, she's an affiliate with many programs and departments, including Women and Gender Studies, International Relations, the Center for Environmental Policy and Administration, South Asia Center, Institute for Global Affairs, Asian and Asian American Studies, and much more. Substantively, Professor Sultana's work is broad ranging, but based in a critical examination of nature's society relationships. And this takes her through political ecology, critical development studies, transnational feminist theories, critical urban studies, water governance, decolonization, human rights, and climate justice. Uh, in the past couple of years alone, 
She has published an absolutely paradigm-defining work on climate change and coloniality, uh, but she's also published on climate and intersectionality and on the role of care and praxis in making transformational change. So I just want to encourage everyone to engage with Professor Sultana's incredibly um, uh, genuine and inspiring work uh, and how she makes connections across so many connected and intersectional issues. So Professor Sultana, um, welcome, and thank you for the generosity of your time. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, David, for such a wonderful um, introduction. And uh, hello to everyone else at the Sydney Environmental Institute. And thank you for hosting this uh, talk, this grounded conversation. And I'm delighted to join you from the traditional ancestral homes of the Onondaga Nation in current day New York State of the United States. Um, again, I'm an uninvited guest to these territories because this is not where I'm traditionally from. My ancestral homelands are in the Ganges Delta as part of the subcontinent of South Asia that's still crashing into the main continent and forming the Himalayan um, mountains. And I'm from the group of people who are way down by the ocean where the largest rivers kind of drain into the Bay of Bengal of the Indian Ocean. So, um, I think I want to, you know, just say thank you and um, turn it over to my co-panelists for their questions. Thanks so much. Um, look, in my intro, uh, to start a broad question, I, I went through the sheer range of your work, um, from water and climate justice to coloniality and care. Can you just talk us through some of the intersections and connections that you make uh, across that work and tell us a bit about what motivates you to engage in that range of intersectional issues? Uh, wow, thank you for that excellent question, David. So um, given my training and interests uh, that kind of connect across the natural sciences, social sciences, and work in public policy, uh, I see connections or I look out and seek out connections across uh, places, scales, uh, spaces, and natural society relationships. And that again is largely because uh, I have been a geographer for a very long time. And as a result of the kind of work I uh, do, uh, the questions I ask or the observations around me that, that I make, I'm really interested in reading um, across the grain and across disciplinary boundaries and also from outside academic work. So what I find is a lot of my research projects tend to be interdisciplinary by nature. Um, I have to be critical, have to be intersectional. And I try to investigate to the best of my ability, a complex multi-scalar and multi-process issues. And, and my hope is that I can try to explain socio-ecological dynamics in international discourses, policies, and lived realities in the best way I can with the theories at hand, but then also from the lived experiences on the ground. And I'm interested in how these various processes, whether it's you know, climate breakdown, water insecurity, food insecurity, international institutions operate, all of these, how they are articulated and negotiated and lived in everyday lives, but also what it means for relations of power, uh, thinking about policy making, but also how we theorize um, in the academy, how we think about being in the academy. So I see my research being motivated uh, by the different um, scholarship I read, um, the transdisciplinary bodies of work that I engage with, and also the communities I work for and with. And I try to look at a range of theoretical and epistemological framings to um, broadly encourage um, social justice across scales. But I think a lot of it is motivated uh, to get to your question about not only just looking for and seeking out interconnection so I can help explain the world better, but there is a normative component to all of my work in terms of a lot of what drives me is from personal lived experience um, in the Global South and having um, worked across three continents. And those kinds of commitments shape my praxis. So it's not just theories and scholarship, but the people I try to listen to the communal histories and wisdoms, the situations that I observed over a life course. And, and all of that tends to motivate 
um, how I approach and analyze injustices. Uh, so whether those injustices occur in academia, in theorizations, in methodological framings, in pedagogy, um, or on the ground. Uh, you know, I try to do whatever I can in, in modest ways, and I work and collaborate with others. I, I try to learn from others. Um, but ultimately, I think what really drives me is to is um, a humble recognition that complex gl global um, social and environmental challenges um, require a, a form of complex analysis. So my work has taken me to investigate a range of issues from climate justice to water contamination and water insecurity to colonialities of structures, um, investigations of global institutions, to feminist understandings of even the COVID-19 pandemic, to academic toxicity. And, and I think uh, in many ways, I try to bring kind of a grounded approach that uh, draws from critical feminist, anti-colonial and decolonial epistemologies and methodologies. And uh, that really tends to motivate me even further because uh, how do we understand the injustices we read about um, or hear about or witness or bear witness to, um, you know, without um, really motivating ourselves to do better? So what that means relatedly is all of us, um, and I'm very mindful of this, is that we use our privileges and the spaces we have access to in the ways that we can advance these discussions or shed some insight or um, you know, raise some awareness, uh, create conditions to have include, um, include and have other voices so that we can move the needle forward. Um, and I never have the hubris that I have the answers to everything or know all the perfect solutions, but um, I try to spotlight alternative framings and actions that could be pursued or envisioned or co-created uh, um, try to elevate what others have already been doing or saying or done in the past. And uh, my hope is that my work inspires people to want to do more and to do better. And so that means uh, to not only read deeply and widely, but also beyond the academy. Yeah, I think, you know, this is really one of the reasons why your work and reading your work, it's just so alive and so grounded and so material, right? I mean, you talk about your own life, you talk about people in places and the reality, the material realities of injustices, and you bring that into the theoretical work. Um, and you, you mentioned something that I want to come back to as well, because um, there's this great quote in your climate coloniality essay. I mean, there's lots of great quotes in your climate coloniality essay, but there's this, um, there's um, something you say about the, the UNFCCC cops, that there is a sense of despair, grief, rage, suffocation, stagnation, abandonment, and regression that coexists with that of a revolutionary potentiality, alternative possibilities, collectivizing determination, world-making, and critical hope. And it's really this sort of beautiful illustration of environmental and climate justice as a critical theory, right? One that has both that sort of critical moment and that reconstructive side. And again, this is one of the reasons why your work is so inspiring, but how important is that combination? And I guess the flip side of that is how difficult is it to keep both of those moments alive, the critical and the reconstructive um, as you write and as you communicate your work? Uh, thank you. Again, another excellent question. Um, so indeed, there is a critical and a reconstructive side. And um, ironically, there's a well-known uh, saying amongst political ecology scholars and geographers that the work we do is both a hatchet and a seed, in that it's a hatchet because it cr it's critical, it critiques issues, right? It excavates problems uproots and exposes underlying injustices, it sheds lights on issues, it foregrounds concerns that are often not heeded and so on. But it's also about planting a seed, which means you know fostering and cultivating something different, um, offer maybe an um, alternative explanation, uh, reimagine alternative futures, 
in terms of how we can think, uh, theorize, teach, uh, do better, but also learn differently from different bodies of work, from different constituents. So there is both that kind of, um, you know, the critical and then the reconstructive side. So uh, my work tries to navigate this tightrope since um, it is so important, but it is not an easy tightrope to navigate. Um, and here's why. So as academics, we are trained to critique, right? That's our job and it's also a privilege. And we have the luxury and the mandate to analyze and investigate, to throw sunlight on issues. And we can do this alone or in collaborations and research and praxis um, or through our scholar activism and so on. But reconstruction is harder. I think that needs to be done much more carefully and should be done through a praxis of reading beyond academic work and learning from lived experiences and wisdoms of people and communities we work with or we study about and ideally elevate their concerns and again not our hubristic theorizations since our suggestions or recommendations for that reconstructive part can actually be misused against the very communities um, or issues uh, that we're trying to find justice and improvements for and this is what i mean by that difficult balancing act and writing and communication of my work across different audiences and spaces globally because again the critical and the critique is something we're trained for not necessarily the reconstructive um especially if we're highly uh, cautious in terms of our words being misused then we're even um, less uh, focused on offering up easy you know, solutions that can actually lead to quite reductionist formulas being forth, um, you know, being pushed forth in your name. But at the same time, um, you know, we have the privilege of access to higher education and that many have been denied and continue to be denied. So it behooves us to be bold, even if we're cautious, uh, to read rigorously and widely, to go beyond academic scholarship, to work with uh, the folks and the communities um, and the socio-ecological systems we're trying to understand so that we can work not just in interdisciplinary way, but in transdisciplinary ways, in, in engaging with um, constituents both inside and outside the academy. But I think what's really important is engaging with the scholarship of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, or what is often the acronym in the U.S. is called BIPOC, which is BIPOC scholars, because uh, these are the communities whose scholarship and wisdom and insights are often not cited in, you know, Western academia. But I think concomitantly, it's really important to do ethical research because we may think we know the answers, but at best we can make recommendations based on our findings um, or based on our critique or engagements, but we should do so as ethically as we can. And, and if that means we need to sound more radical to get a message across at, to different audiences, you know, uh, we always back it up with evidence and, and rigorous scholarship, but it means that we can perhaps uh, have greater intervention in spaces of policymaking, in, you know, amongst politicians, amongst, you know, institutions, and also amongst other bodies of uh, um, scholarship and academic knowledge production. And at the same time, I think parallel to that kind of methodological concern, one thing that um, I believe is that in offering a critique, that is the most important thing we can do because we're actually disrupting hegemonic or dominant constructions of the world that are often incomplete or maybe Eurocentric or masculine or colonial or even racist. So embedded in the critique is actually a reconstructive seed. And, and that is something I always point out that the critical importance of engaging and learning from other bodies of scholarship is so important because through the critique, through the hatchet, you're planting the seed, whether that's deriving from work that's again, feminist or decolonial or critical race theories or post-colonial scholarship and so on. And as a result, uh, so much of my work over the decades has been to explore the complex ways in which, let's say, processes of development and globalization have come to impact well-being and poverty and socio-ecological change across sites and scales intersectionally. And, and, you know, what this means for wider concerns of democracy and citizenship and social justice. So therefore, I have to do the crit critique and the critical work, 
but in different ways for different readerships and at different moments. But it also means having to speak in different ways to very different audiences. And, and I have to tailor my work as effectively as I can in that instance, whether it's an academic theoretical piece, a policy-oriented or applied piece, perhaps a white paper, or you know, talking directly to students or activists or the media or policymakers. Uh, so I think all of us are doing that kind of critical and reconstructive work, but it may sound and uh, read differently. Um, and I'll conclude by saying that it's the important component of all of that is a critical self-reflexivity um, on my positionality, on power relations, on geopolitics, uh, being very mindful of the research process and about voice. And this means that I try to um, avoid thin slice pu publishing um, or give into the kind of productivity fetish in academia because our words are powerful. They travel, they have impact. So we can maybe publish less and perhaps be a better public intellectual and engage widely. And, and I think that's what I'm trying to do both in visible and invisible ways so that my published work is not the sum total of my actual contributions. And, uh, and what motivates me is trying to reach a wider and uh, disparate audiences because my philosophy is otherwise, what's the point? Right, uh, we're we're here with this one life to live, and um, you know, a very limited time. Let's try to make the most of it as as we can. And for me, that means not always operating just within the confines of academia. Yes, this is you. You just sort of laid out the mission of the Sydney Environment Institute. We really, I mean, this is key, um, and this is one of the issues that we face all the time: is how does the university count that kind of work that goes beyond? Um, but let me turn this over to our uh, a set of our early career researchers here. Uh, I'll introduce Anna Sturman here. So Anna is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Sydney Environment Institute. <clears throat> She's working um, on an Australian government funded project uh, on developing systems and capacities to protect animals <clears throat> in catastrophic fires. She's working with Shoalhaven um, City Council on that. And his own research uh, is on bringing historical materialist critiques of nature and value and the role of the state to bear on contemporary climate change discussions, um, particularly with regards to agrarian and rural transformations. And I have to say, we just learned yesterday that Anna's PhD thesis won a Best Thesis of the Year Award uh, in political economy. So we're very proud of Anna and she'll ask the next question. Thank you, David. That was a lovely introduction. Um, and thank you, Fahana, for being here today. It's such a joy to get to have this, this chat. I am a political economist and I'm a Marxist feminist or a materialist eco-feminist. And so, so many of the themes in your work speak so strongly to both theoretically what I'm trying to do and in terms of the, the actual change I'd love to see in the world. So, do you have any reflections on how well-established, and I mean well-established, I mean things written from the 1970s through to today, um, how well-established feminist critiques of productive labour and labour organising in capitalism are or are not at work in our present moment of renewed labour and social movement organising and the incredibly expansive social movement organizing we're seeing. So I'm thinking here in particular of how sites of socio-ecological reproduction across the different contexts um, that you look at are or are not being consciously woven into progressive strategies and your perspective on how significant or successful these have and might be. Uh, thank you, Anna, for those uh, thoughtful questions and provocation. Um, so as you know, many feminist scholars have pointed out uh, that social reproduction and care allows the economy to even exist. But we're constantly told to focus on productive labor and the market economy. And, and that's an incomplete picture uh, because it's, a, it's, it's not only incomplete, but it's also a deflection, in my opinion, to hyper-fetishize wage labor, commodities, and market forces while devaluing and overlooking um, everything that hold those things up, like social reproduction, unpaid care work, commoning, barter, uh, caretaking ecological systems, and, and so on. 
And, and this is something that many feminist geographers uh, who, who have worked on diverse economies, uh, both in Australia and elsewhere, such as J.K. Gibson Graham have talked about, but then also feminist scholars um, across the board, you know, who have critiqued these systems. I'm thinking of, you know, work of many socialist feminists and eco-feminists and women of color feminists, um, ranging from Sylvia Federici's work to Dithi Patacharya and so on. And what these feminists have really taught me is that the, through the critique of patriarchal division of labor and the public-private binaries and the oppressive relations to capital and class relations, we can really start to understand why is it that the labor of productive work is so important, but the other kinds of labor are not. So if we're trying to uh, work about, uh, around these concerns in terms of progressive strategies, uh, uh, you know, if I understood your question correctly. So for instance, you know, in thinking about what do we mean by um, progressive organizing, what do we mean by labor? Uh, let me go back to the COVID-19 pandemic, which may seem quite far away, but it is still ongoing. If we're thinking back to in the last three years and more, what researchers found is that women's unpaid care work exponentially increased throughout the pandemic, both for care work for children, elderly, but the sick. And this had deleterious impacts on their productive labor time in the workforce, but also in labor organizing. So, you know, so community work. So this means that the overall terms of the time needed, they um, had to give up impacted the wages they earned, the leisure time they had, you know, the capacities to do additional organizing or communal work, but then also time they had for their own health management and managing exposures to risk. So another issue that I really think that's important for us to be clear on is what do we mean by quote unquote labor force? Uh, are we talking about the labor force in a certain sector or is it the ethnic or racial majority in a place or perhaps precarious labor migrants. Again, going throughout the pandemic, but even before that, uh, what a lot of feminists and other scholars have shown is that precarious labor force workers during the pandemic were unable to send remittances to their families overseas or were forced to leave their countries of employment throughout the pandemic. So that also therefore not only reduced the different kinds of labor they could be employed in, but then also perhaps any other organizing or progressive labor movements or activist movements they may have been part of. Um, at the same time, I really want to stress the importance of spatial intersectionality analysis to this, because when we think about labor or women, it's not all women or all gender minorities, right? But in terms of the disproportionate burdens and harms who face exclusions um, on all kinds of uh, fronts, based on race, ethnicity, migrant status, sexuality, religion, or even where they live or where they are from. So if we're thinking about, for instance, um, places across the global south that's facing greater climate breakdown, you know, whose labor gets to count for what kind of work and organizing and what kind of um, opportunities and privileges do people have to undertake different kinds of uh, what is considered or valued as actual labor or what is visible as organizing. So one thing that at the same time, conversely, that also became quite uh, visible throughout the pandemic were instances of solidarities on issues such as mutual aid, uh, caregiving activities, uh, and, and issues around supporting feminist organizations across and between countries to collaborate. Uh, it, to meet rising challenges in recent years. But all of this also benefited from feminist critiques and philosophies that derive from, as you pointed out, from the 1970s and onwards, uh, to put those into practice in forms of organizing that do play a role when we think about, you know, overarching progressive labor-oriented organizing or reorganizing in terms of meeting crises at the moment whether it's around, it was around the pandemic, it was around water scarcity or food scarcity or lack of wage labor and, and all of that, right? So what I, I want us to think about is the importance of the different types of labor and work uh, that often don't get you know, included in, in discussions around labor organizing. 
But with that, I, I want to also stress is that with the rise in labor and social movement organizing, especially around, let's say, climate justice, but also around mutual aid, around, you know, fighting against, um, you know, corporate dispossession or, you know, colonial harms. What we have seen is the importance of feminist critiques of capitalism and labor theories, because, you know, those help us understand what are we actually working on and, and why are we doing it the way we are. And given this, I think drawing from a range of feminisms that draw from, you know, indigenous, global south, a decolonial and critical race scholarship have really enriched wider uh, feminist work on issues around labor, capital, economy, and so on. Um, and lastly, I, I'll end with saying that parallel to this, feminist methodological insights have been incredibly important in thinking about labor and organizing and social movements. So there's been more upfront discussions around, uh, for instance, situated knowledge on positionality on both individual and group self-reflexivity. Um, on intersubjectivity, on ethics of care, accountability, reciprocity, co-producing knowledge, uh, relationality, and critical praxis. Because it's really hard to do important uh, radical or intersectional work uh, that is meaningful, that is justice-oriented, that and that is ethical and is useful to marginalized communities on the ground, you know, if organizing um, an analysis of labor does not move beyond kind of vanguard Marxist class analysis to, you know, employ with all of these other forms of both theoretical interventions, but also methodological, but also praxis in terms of on the ground uh, movements and lived experiences of everyday people from around around the world and not just uh, dominant class relations. I can imagine we could do a whole week long workshop on that question alone. Um, I want to move on uh, and introduce Dr. Justin C. Uh, Justin is a postdoctoral research associate here at SEI in climate change adaptation. He's got more than 10 years research experience in the field of climate change adaptation and vulnerability in climate justice, uh, utilizing strengths-based, strengths uh, gender-sensitive and place-based approaches his research explores the complex social, political, and economic injustices brought about by various responses to climate change, and he highlights diverse pathways to climate adaptation. Um, you mentioned uh, Kathy Gibson a, a, a few minutes ago, uh, and uh, just to say, Justin's done quite a bit of collaborative work with her as well. So I'll let Justin ask the next question. Thank you very much, David, for the wonderful introduction. And thanks very much, Farhana, for all your beautiful insights. This has really been so inspiring and motivating for an early career researcher like me. So, uh, yes, my name is Justin C. I'm a, you know, a scholar who originated from the Global South and has long-term commitments and access to knowledge through relationships with communities, particularly in the Philippines. Your work on col climate coloniality really resonates well with me. You know, I take up your call of decolonizing climate in my work. I'm kind of thinking and writing about the different ways that colonialism has contributed to people's climate vulnerabilities in the global south and, you know, foregrounding some of the community's knowledge, capacities, and strategies in facilitating adaptation to climate change. However, you know, sometimes I feel a bit um, disheartened about what I'm seeing, especially with this existing kind of data that shows an apparent unequal distribution of authorship in climate change publications. Um, you know, what I'm seeing is most of the published work is by Western scholars, and even by some of those in non-Western countries. And I think that decolonization efforts would not be as meaningful if, you know, really few scholars from former colonies are engaged in this kind of publishing and writing. And you briefly touched upon this a while ago, but I really just want to ask, what do you think is needed to balance the scales in terms of this inequitable outputs between scholars um, from the global north and from the global south? What do you think needs to be done within the academia or within the broader social economy of publishing in general to challenge this hegemony of Western scholarship? 
thank you, Julian, uh, for very important and excellent questions um, and letting me know that my work resonates with you. And I completely agree uh, that there's great imbalance um, in the unequal distribution of authorship and inclusion of authors from the Global South, um, but then also marginalized uh, communities across the world. And we see that across Western scholarship, right? And especially in um, top tier publications or academic presses. So one thing I've noticed is that often scholars are simply not invited to be collaborators or co-authors, but are seen as people who just provide data on, you know, from the ground or they're just knowledge providers from elsewhere. Uh, they can be seen as less than or having just quote unquote field knowledge from the global south, but their academic or theoretical knowledge is not as deeply valued. And this is a form um, you know, that derives from the legacies of imperialism, uh, colonialism, Eurocentrism, and Orientalism, uh, and the framing of the other in terms of whose knowledge gets to count and, and who has voice. And the other situation um, I think that's really important to also think about is the fact that expensive paywalls for academic journals and the cost of books and journals uh, restrict uh, knowledge being readily accessible to scholars, researchers, students, and activists across the global south and elsewhere. And this also creates another set of barriers uh, to inclusion and participation on an equal footing without access to the same journals, books, events, and so on. So there is that disparity in what people have access to and are well read up on. So not only are they first discounted, but then they're also um, made inequitable through the whole um, industri industrialized or commercialized academic publishing process. So there are multiple things that are needed in my mind. So I think first is the publishing model in academia that really needs to change. And knowledge needs to be more accessible and shareable. It is incredibly difficult given that uh, most of academia globally, um, you know, is, is stuck in the strange relationship of corporate publishers making billions of dollars off of our free intellectual labor as authors. And because we certainly don't get paid to publish in journals or hold down editorial jobs or peer reviewers. So this model is very problematic. But at the same time, the rise of predatory journals who make publications open access, but for a hefty fee, means that there's also a lot of garbage that's out there posing as valid academic knowledge or research findings that are often not peer reviewed um, or hasn't been really vetted, but they're available to people more readily around the world just because somebody paid a high fee to publish that work. So right, so we have a really problematic scenario where there's gatekeeping of uh, more vetted or peer reviewed work um, and not gatekeeping of the ones that are not, but somebody's paying to publish. And what I've seen is that this pay to publish model of open access scholarship also creates barriers in different ways to scholars from the global south because they cannot pay those fees whether it's in predatory journals or increasingly in the well-known ones, such as even in Nature, uh, you know, or other reputable journals, because they cannot simply pay. So there's both that barrier in terms of finances. Um, another barrier I found, um, you know, is the language barrier or the ability to write with academic flourish. And that makes a lot of scholars um, face challenges in getting through the peer review process. And I believe, therefore, this process needs to include, improve to include more, more uh, people in terms of maybe coaching and mentoring um, and not assuming that just because somebody's operating in a third, fourth or fifth language, you know, English may be their second or maybe their sixth language that they're working in, that, uh, that they're, you know, um, they know less than just because the linguistic barrier exists. So as a result, what we're seeing is this escalating commodification, gatekeeping of knowledge, production, dissemination, and circulation is hindering that free flow of knowledge and advancement and scholarship and really harming um, academia overall because we are depriving wider public discourse and understanding by including greater number of voices. 
And one way I've seen senior academics who've been battling the system of exploitation and capture and exclusion is setting up rigorous open access journals that are not funded by corporations or grants, uh, uh, you know, or often are supported by small grants and universities and a lot of free labor, but there's no hefty fees involved to publish, but they, the articles undergo rigorous peer review, the journals have worked, you know, up their way up to the top. You know, there are many uh, journals, at least in my discipline in geography, you know, um, such as ACME, which is an international journal for critical geographies. There's also the Journal of Political Ecology, amongst many others. But again, this is a lot of uncompensated labor for everyone involved. Um, another way that senior academics um, are trying to get around the cost issue is getting grants to fund um, open access books and journal issues uh, and including more marginalized scholars and to platform their voice and wisdom instead through co-writing and collaborating. And even if this operates in the commodified space, until we have something better that's readily available, uh, this route of you know, getting grants to fund uh, more Global South scholars uh, is, is a way that people are mobilizing their privilege. But at the same time, I think it's really important that journal editors and, and publishing houses start to um, being more mindful of the lack of, you know, diversity of a lack of, you know, a wider range of voices. And also to not just, you know, talk about decolonizing in metaphorical ways, but actually think about what it means uh, to stop these racist assumptions about, again, non-native English speakers. Uh, at this end, also whose voices are being included in the various journal issues. Um, and I think one thing that more and more Western-based scholars can do is to, you know, lastly, to engage with scholars from around the world, to elevate and cite their work so that more people actually know about it, that they exist, you know, uh, to, to read more widely and include material from within the ivory tower and outside. And this could mean reading in other languages, you know, including and citing that work, um, working across disciplinary and linguistic, um, you know, barriers, but, you know, and citing BIPOC scholars. But then this, what this means is that you're elevating what knowledge gets to count, even if those scholars may not be publishing with you, they are still publishing with you because they're in what you're trying to say. So until we can kind of decolonize the dominant academic publishing model uh, in terms of being more inclusive in collaborators and not tokenizing them um, or inviting research assistants to be co-authors, mentoring folks through the academic writing process, you know, opening up publication um, processes uh, to not be full of expensive fees. Uh, I think we, we need to uh, figure out ways to we can both battle all those issues, but also create alternative routes to be more inclusive. And, and I think these multi-pronged approaches need to be uh, pursued. And there are plenty of journal editors who are actively working on this, uh, you know, that know far more than me. So I think it's really important we continue to have these conversations. So, so thank you for that question. Uh, thanks so much for that. There's so much experience there. And I think it's interesting to see those critiques filter into those publishers. Um, you know, the, I think folks are getting, you know, editors are getting used to hearing those kinds uh, of critiques. Last up, I want to introduce uh, Maria Cardoso Nunez. Uh, she holds a Master of Public Policy from the University of Sydney and works as Research and Impact Officer here. Uh, at um, Black, actually at Relationships in Australia, but also here at SEI. Maria has a background in law and sociocultural studies with an interest in community action and social justice. She's previously contributed to developing evidence-based policy for Indigenous peoples and youth education in Colombia. And she was most recently a research fellow, fantastic research fellow, thank you. Um, at SEI's Grounded Imaginaries Research Project. So, Maria. Thank you, David. Thank you for Hannah. And yeah, it was, as Justin said, just very inspiring to hear your thoughts and comments on decolonization, especially also being from the Global South, from Colombia, and coming here to Australia and trying to do this work. I've always been focused a bit more between community action and academia. So I was always like in the two areas. And I found that at SEI, I noticed they did that and it was part of the Grounded Imaginaries project here, 
where, for example, most of our outputs were not academic articles. We had some podcasts, we had some Instagram account so that we were able to share um, our findings in a more accessible way. And in that project, we documented a range of grounded alternative imaginaries that challenged the dominant climate change narratives, um, such as the business as usual, the doomed one, or the technofix scenarios. And we also witnessed the capacity in my particular case, but we also did it with Indian communities, but I particularly witnessed the capacity of Australian communities to serve as a source of ideas and models for replication by others. And one of the aspects that stood up for me was their approach to care in their practices, because every single person was having an approach to care. And it was relevant for me because I also connect, well, as David said, I work at Relationships Australia, which is a community service in organization. And I'm very interested to know and explore your thoughts about the role of care in grounded collective actions to reshape narratives, to promote climate justice, and to challenge climate col coloniality. Uh, thank you, Maria. Um, and it's wonderful to hear that your um, Grounded Alternative Imaginaries project um, were able to capture very important components of care um, in reframing climate narratives and actions, uh, you know, that kind of combine both academic and uh, community knowledges. So I think that care and ethics of care uh, can be revolutionary vehicles for abolitionist climate praxis, because what we can do is therefore try to think about and foster more ethical climate justice work and challenge climate coloniality. And in my mind, care here embraces but goes beyond the radical care of the self to encompass others, both human and more than human. And recognizing that you know, activism and resistance against um, you know, uh, rapacious uh, neoliberal uh, capitalism or coloniality or racism or marginalization that devalues life and living, we can start to elevate care politics that centralizes addressing interlocking oppressions by creating coalitions against intersectional harms for many. And I think this is why working with communities is so important because it cannot just come from academia. It's never going to work if it does. So in that way, we can think about what it means uh, to hold mutuality beyond interpersonal interactions and interdependence. And what I mean by this is doing what I call careful work, not just me, but many other scholars, means it's full of care, not careful as in cautious, right? So, and, and what we mean in doing that kind of careful work is that it's political and it's intentional. And this radical care praxis is transgressive, in elevating that ethical action of responsibility um, and in terms of also recognizing the challenges and the limitations of this kind of work. So it's not working uh, with some sort of naivete that we can just run about and say, we're doing care work and it'll work out. No, solidarity work is incredible hard, incredibly difficult. But at the same time, you know, if we're having these conversations about um, care about, uh, giving or receiving care, uh, developing ethics and networks of care that necessitate working through contradictions and pitfalls, we're able to do much more grounded and meaningful work. And um, from my uh, readings and, and, you know, my thinking and teaching on all of this, I found that the most inspirational work was coming from you know, indigenous and feminist and allied scholars and uh, community work where these issues around care ethics and practices of care were being really hammered out or talked about, you know, whether that was, um, you know, care for uh, communal work, um, but also feminist uh, environmental care ethics for collectivity. How can we also at the same time think about uh, distant processes and spaces and ecologies in thinking about why should we care? And we should because of that kind of shared commitment that's not just born out of a shared pain or a sense of injustice that traverses space and time, but recognizing what we do from where we are with what we have is incredibly important to, the, uh, to be able to do more. And those always have to be grounded in places. 
And, you know, and, and radical care accounts for those kind of embodied emotionalities that saturate everyday experiences, you know, of climate injustice and, and various other social injustices. But one thing that's really important, I think, that, that I've also witnessed and others have written about is that care work is very unevenly born and it is devalued, you know, as, as we talked about just a little while ago. So we need to normalize and nurture this a wider participation across different positionalities and groups and identities to developing a praxis of care. Uh, if we're going to, you know, kind of work our way through the, the massive mess and the crisis that the world is in, because how else are we going to, you know, co-create pathways for alternative flourishing and healing and relating? And I think this kind of mutuality that we learn from, you know, Black communities, Indigenous communities, Global South communities, um, allows us to develop different kinds of thinking muscles, but also caring muscles. And, and one thing that I found very, a lot of inspiration from is if we look at historical records of anti-colonial movements or decolonial movements, uh, history is replete with examples of both success stories and lessons learned. So we can really therefore learn from what's going on around us now and, on, and also in the past. And, and we can start to foreground why care ethics holds the possibility for that revolutionary potentiality against atmospheres of violence. And this is not just about transformation, but it's about restorative. And it is not restorative. Uh, what I mean by that is not restoring to what was there before, but it's about nurturing to something better. And it's a very iterative process. It is nonlinear. You fall and stumble and you learn from, from that. And then I think this is why that intention and politics of reassessment of that iterative, um, you know, self and group reflexivity of being in community are so important. And, and this process is very dialogic. Um, and when we talk about or think about radical praxis of care for, you know, careful uh, climate revolutions or, or social justice movements, we, we start to open up greater spaces of action and conversation, of reflection and dialogue, but then also um, give uh, inspiration to those who may be just observing from afar or from near. And, and therefore, our work has to be critically intersectionally attuned um, and work with different groups and spaces, because otherwise we re can reproduce exclusions and marginalizations, um, as has been evident in recent critiques of, let's say, um, whiteness and coloniality permeating activism and nonprofit groups, you know, that tend to sideline global majority voices and concerns, let's say, around climate change. So those issues have really been brought to the fore in recent years and people are tackling with what this means. And sometimes what this means is conceding ground and listening, deep listening and learning and, and that kind of mutuality that is a, a learned skill. So when we think about kind of abolitioning structures of harm that hold people in, you know, in places uh, in ongoing traumas, how do we think about reparative relations and this requires intentional labor of care and care ethics, whether it's you know, organizing labor uh, or it's through various kinds of work that we do, whether it's teaching or in our community or having conversations. And, and I think this is where we need to keep pushing and, and demand greater political power and willpower of the public to learn more and, and join forces in, again, in various multi-pronged ways and across places and scales. And this may seem daunting, but it is possible if we make it. Otherwise, um, it will always seem impossible and beyond our reach. Thanks very much for that. I think one of the things that <clears throat> Maria has learned and a number of us have learned in work, and I mean, certainly in my work in environmental justice the last 30 years, care exists in the community. My care is there in, in the, the work that Maria was talking about, Grounded Imaginaries, that just the immense amount of care that's there for transformation. Just this work we've been doing that Anna's been leading in the Shoalhaven in community events, the, the care is palpable, uh, you know, and people are talking from a position uh, of care and transformation. And yeah, attentiveness to that is absolutely crucial. Thank you, David, and thank you, um, Sydney Environmental Institute, and thank you, Anna, Justin, and Maria for excellent questions, and David for inviting me and, and organizing this event. And um, I look forward to learning more about events and activities uh, you all are doing and someday getting to visit Australia.
Great. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for joining us and uh, keep uh, your eyes out for our next Grounded Conversation.